it's said that after his awakening, his enlightenment experience, the Buddha uh, surveyed the world with kind of a very broad sort of vision. And he saw beings, saw people trying desperately to be happy, to find some kind of happiness, satisfaction, and at the same time doing the very thing that was causing them to suffer. And it said that he was moved to offer the, the teachings that he did uh, from seeing this out of compassion, this maha, great compassion, maha karuna. And this, when we, when we think about this idea of beings trying to be happy and, and doing the thing that caused them to be unhappy, to suffer, you can see this as really pointing at something fundamental about the human condition, you could say, and also this sense of, of the rolling on of what is called samsara, of this endless cycle. And nothing's really changed very much in the 25 and more centuries since that time. And if we look over the world, we'll see this same scenario is still playing itself out in all of the things that we and others get up to, all the different shenanigans and a lot of weird stuff sometimes. It's all born on a fundamental level of the same movement of heart, this desire to find some kind of happiness or ease or peace or lasting satisfaction, all the different ways we might speak of that. And we're all looking for this, for this deep kind of true happiness. But the question then is, are we looking in the right place or you could say in the right way? Because if we're not looking in the right place, we're not likely to find anything. We're not going to find what we're looking for. And really, everything that we might say in one of these talks is is addressing this from different angles in some way, addressing the search, this ongoing search. Where, where do we look for? How do we find some kind of real, abiding, lasting happiness? And you could say for most of us, our usual approach is to try to get the conditions in our life to to line up with some idea we have of of what brings happiness and you know we try to find the right job and the right partner and the right place to live and all the things that that we're told are the keys to happiness or to what we might call success and we might have some we might have some success in this regard we might get things to to come together in some way and and these are all good things to consider these are not not foolish or or meaningless having work that we enjoy and that we're good at is a huge blessing and it's spoken about in one of the uh, one of the teachings and a chant it's the mangala sutta where it's listing the blessings in life and having good work that we enjoy that's wholesome that's a great blessing. And having people in our lives we can share good times and bad times with, pleasant, good experiences, these are all, these are not without meaning. These are good things. They're not useless. They're not unworthy aims in a life. And there are many occasions in different teachings where the Buddha spoke about the kinds of um, what, what's called worldly or mundane happiness that one can have and enjoy these kinds of things. And there's one uh, teaching I'll read to you now where he's speaking to his, kind of his most dedicated um, lay disciple and supporter, uh, Anattapindaka, a wealthy merchant who was extremely generous in supporting the Buddha and his followers. And he was a real yogi, real genuine practitioner. And he was speaking to him and he addressed him as, as householder, one who lives a worldly life, not a renunciate life. And he said, Householder, there are these four kinds of happiness that may be achieved by a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures, depending on time and occasion. What are the four? The happiness of ownership or possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of freedom from debt, and the happiness of blamelessness. 
And then he went on to to um, elaborate on this statement. He said, and what householder is the happiness of ownership? Here one has acquired wealth by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of one's arms, earned by the sweat of one's brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. When one thinks, I have acquired wealth by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of my arms and earned by the sweat of my brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained, one experiences happiness and joy. This is called the happiness of ownership. And we might not think of reflecting in this way and actually bring to mind the things that we have gotten in life, the good things, our material gains, our possessions. Reflect on that there is a certain kind of happiness that comes from these things. The hard work that we've done to to uh, get our life to a, a place of some satisfaction on a certain level and, and seeing the fruits of our labors, the pleasure of good things in our lives that we may have. And he speaks of these other uh, threads of happiness. He talks about the happiness of enjoyment in much the same way, bringing to mind that which is uh, enjoyable, the simple pleasures that come our way in life at times. The happiness of being free of debt. The happiness of blamelessness is the happiness that comes from living a, a life of ethical conduct where it's said one can go into an assembly of any group of people and feel blameless. These are great blessings, great great joys, and there's a lot of real, genuine happiness that comes from these things. And counting one's blessings in this way of bringing these things to mind is is actually a very wholesome and skillful thing to do. It turns the mind toward uh, appreciation, towards gratitude, which is a beautiful quality of mind. And there are those, I think Jill was take, telling me recently that she and one of her friends have a, a gratitude practice that they do. And people um, who practice this will bring to mind things that are that they're grateful for and actually if we start thinking about it, I mean, we're inside here, it's relatively warm. <laughs> if we had to live outside like the birds and the other animals, it would be really different. We have great food here. We have a lot of simple blessings that we can overlook or take for granted. The ability to come and spend time on a retreat, that's no small thing. So it's good to bring these things to mind and, and turn the mind towards what we might uh, be grateful for to actually count our blessings. So happiness on this level is real and true, and there's no, that's not uh, a problem. But we need to bear in mind that there, that it's a limited kind of happiness, and that there is a fundamental fragility inherent in these kinds of worldly happiness, because. No matter what, at some point we will be faced with the inevitability of change. Change comes and things don't last and things fall apart. We might lose our job. Someone we love gets sick. Those who we care for uh, grow old, pass away, they die. And there's the daily concerns and worries and stresses that come in life at times, meeting our responsibilities all of these things that are real. And sometimes really true, deep suffering comes our way from changes that happen in the world, in our life. And even if everything in our life, we get it together and it stays relatively stable, at some point we all are going to be facing the the truths of aging, probably some kind of illness with that and death eventually. This is the trajectory of a life. If we take birth, that's the way we're heading. And this is unavoidable for all of us. And we don't know when this is coming. And it was actually reflecting on the tru- these truths of the fact that we age, we grow ill at times, we all come to death. This was the, it was reflecting on these uh, truths. These are sometimes called the heavenly messengers. And it's what led the Buddha to his his quest to find some deeper understanding. That if I'm just going to get old and sick and die, what's the point? 
There's got to be some way to to come to terms with this, something, uh, way of, of relating to this. So then, what do we do if we have this urge, this movement of heart towards finding some kind of abiding or deep happiness or satisfaction, peace? How do we then navigate the uncertainty, unpredictability, uncontrollability of life? And this fragility of the happinesses that we can find on the worldly level. How do we navigate that? We find this image of the spiritual life as a journey in uh, in this tradition and in other great traditions. It's not only in Buddhism that we have this sense of this walking the spiritual path as a journey. And we've been using this, Jill has used this image as a the the practice, this retreat as a journey, a voyage. Sometimes this is described as a journey to our, our true home, a journey home. It's kind of a beautiful image. And, and if we think about what it would be like to reach something that would be a true home, it has this, for me at least, this sense or connotation of a place where we could walk in the door and relax, really relax, be deeply at ease truly at ease. And so then, if we think of the spiritual life as a journey, we're walking this path to the deepest possible kind of ease or peace, to liberation, however we might uh, think of that. And this can be a useful way of, of, it can be a useful image, a useful way to think of things, as long as we don't hold the this image too literally. Because it's not that we're going someplace other than where we are right now. And we're not getting something we don't have. We end up on this journey, this voyage, we end up where we started. But our understanding has changed. These are just a few lines from uh, the poet T.S. Eliot from um, part of the a long poem called The Four Quartets. This is from Little Gidding, one of the four quartets. And it's just a few lines from from that. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. It's really a beautiful description, I think, of this this journey. We arrive where we started, but we know it for the first time. We know it in a different way. So nothing changes and everything is completely, radically transformed. Transformed by the power of insight, by liberating wisdom. This deep seeing into the fundamental truth of the way things really are. So we could talk about this, think about this in a lot of ways, but tonight I want to think about this and and uh, reflect a bit on this idea of a journey of transformation in terms of uh, the Noble Eightfold Path, which Jill touched on a little bit last night. And, and this is part of the core teaching in the Four Noble Truths, uh, really the, the heart of what the Buddha taught. And this this Eightfold Noble Path, which is the Fourth Noble Truth, it offers us a set of, um, really a set of practices that allow us to understand the nature of suffering, first noble truth, its cause, the second noble truth, that which uh, leads to the end of it, the cessation of that suffering. And through this, to, to realize freedom, the liberation of mind that the Buddha was pointing to. Now, this teaching is, you know, as Jill was pointing out, this tradition has got a lot of lists, you know. There's the one of these and the two of those and the three of these. And there's lots of lists. And this is not just another list that you're supposed to memorize if you're a good Buddhist. And it's not just a, not just a reflection of some kind of philosophy 
but it actually is something that we engage with directly in, in our practice. And we're doing it without uh, doing, without doing it. <laughs> we're doing it without knowing it, you could say. Like you don't have to remember these things. You might at some point. But it, they, we engage with it in our practice, within the meditation practice, and in our lives outside of that. It's, it's very broad. And in terms of the actual practice, this is not this, even though it's this eightfold path and it seems like, okay, there's these, these eight steps or something. It's not a linear progression of one thing following another. A more useful way of thinking of it would be uh, like the interwoven strands of a cable that all support and inform uh, one another. It's a much more useful uh, way to think of this um, this teaching and the way this actually functions. So I'm going to use this as a bit of a framework um, for looking at how the practice, kind of what we're doing here, hopefully in a way that actually uh, makes some sense and is, is useful to think about. So this eightfold path, these eight steps, are usually divided into three groups. The first of these is uh, sometimes called the wisdom group, and it consists of two factors. Um, often it's translated as, it's, it's um, the word in Pali uh, for the first one, sama ditti, the word sama, often translated as right, sometimes wise might be a, a more skillful translation, but wise or white, <coughs> mixing up my R's and W's here, wise or right view, samaditi, and right intention, samasankapa. Um, these are the first first two. Sometimes uh, right intention is also thought of as right thought. So these these two address kind of the basic orientation of our mind, you could say. And they they can lead to a, a real shift in our uh, perspective, shift away from the usual way that uh, we might find ourselves um, seeing things. And there's a lot of ways. There's there's one teaching where I think the Buddha goes through 16 different um, ways of thinking of, of of things that comprise right view. Right view is an understanding of the teachings uh, of karma, for example, um, all kinds of things. But I want to touch on one possible way that we might think of right view, and this has to do with um, with really understanding the first noble truth, the noble truth of dukkha. The word dukkha usually translated as suffering. I think we've spoken to this. Not a great translation. So what does this mean? Because an understanding of, of dukkha is really uh, crucial for us to have some uh, real real understanding on a on a very personal practical way of what this is pointing to so it's useful to look at this word dukkha i'm going to just use the word dukkha and I'll, I'll flesh out some meanings for it here in the next minute or two but it's useful to look at it um, it's usually translated as suffering sometimes unsatisfactoriness or unreliability those are better translations it's useful to look at it on a couple of levels. The first one is um, is actually difficult stuff, pain, painful feelings that are associated with bodily life. The process of taking birth, birth is painful, aging, times of sickness, the process of dying, these are difficult, painful Feelings in the body, painful situations, painful mental states, these kinds of things. These are a form of dukkha. Fairly obvious. We could say suffering applies to these, although that's a pretty strong word in, in English. A more subtle understanding has to do with this, uh, these translations of unsatisfactoriness or unreliability, and it, it points to this the way that this is intrinsic to all of our experience, to all conditioned experience, to life on this worldly level. And it, it applies to pleasant and unpleasant experiences. So it's not just painful sensations or painful things that happen. 
this unreliability or unsatisfactoriness applies to everything, even things that are, are quite enjoyable and pleasant. And this has to do with a kind of inner anxiety, you could say, sometimes quite subtle, that is born of this constant change, like this fragility that I was speaking about. There's this unsatisfactoriness. Pleasant things don't last. Things fall apart, all the stuff I was talking about earlier. Things are impermanent. So this this anxiety, this unsatisfactoriness, this unreliability is born of this, the, the fact that things change. That's just the nature of, of life. And things are largely out of our control. We can't, even if we get it really together, we can't control it and make it stay that way. We can't keep change from happening. Change is just a fundamental aspect of, of life, right? When I was first came to formal practice in this tradition. At that time, I was living in San Francisco, California. Very, my, my favorite city in the United States. It's on a bay, kind of like, like Sydney, I guess, in that way. A lot of water around there. and It's, it's kind of a cool place. And um, I was very interested in being cool at that time. And I had gotten my life to, I had raised my coolness quotient to a pretty high level I had a very, really cool vintage motorcycle, nice leather jacket. I was living a kind of a bohemian urban life, was kind of in an artist, uh, artistic work. And, you know, I lived in this really great, neat old converted fire station building. I really had it together. I've, I've gone down substantially since that time. And I, you know, I had work that was enjoyable. I had good friends. I had a lot of, you know, I'd kind of really gotten it to a good place. And, you know, I had, I had the, I could travel sometimes. I wasn't rich, but I was, you know, feeding myself and making ends meet and I was going along. And yet there was this thread of dissatisfaction that was woven through. And I remember so often feeling this, at times, this kind of emptiness of like, well, is this, is this all? And, and looking desperately for somebody to fill this sort of void that would show up. And I'd do all kinds of things to just not have to feel that. And it just seemed like I couldn't think of anything else to try. Anything new. And that was this, this truth of dukkha. I didn't know it. <laughs> but it was coming right directly into this, this kind of anxiety, this sense of unreliability, unsatisfactoriness. Really touching that very directly. And, you know, we're somehow we're, we have this conditioning somehow that operates where we, we have this idea that we're supposed to be able to get our lives together and then somehow keep it that way and always be, you know, happy and maybe look like the people look on television commercials. You know, and they're so happy and they're also really good looking, aren't they? And we're supposed to be as happy and good looking as them if we had our act together. And, and this attitude, even though it's, you know, it sounds silly when I'm talking about it now, but, but there's something in this that leads us to take this truth of dukkha personally as though somehow it's our fault. As somehow it's because we're doing something wrong or not doing something right. We take it as evidence of our personal failures, though we're, we're somehow flawed and, and, you know, no matter what, we're going to get the range of joys and sorrows and we can't have it always go the way we want. And and it's not that we shouldn't try to live as well as we can. Like when I was talking about the blessings that the Buddha spoke about on the worldly level. Yeah, we try our best to live with grace and integrity and to, to live a good life. And, and this understanding of dukkha doesn't need to lead us to resignation and, and just despair. That's not the point there. But opening to this truth, the noble truth, is to be understood. That's how it's described. This is the, this opens the door to the practice. This is where we start. This is where the Buddha started. Because until we really open to this deep fragility and unreliability of things, we're always going to be looking for a way out and turning to that which by its very nature 
is unreliable, is in it's not capable of being the source for our lasting happiness and and deep peace. It just can't do it. We're asking it to provide something it cannot provide. So the key understanding that the Buddha came to is that stress and struggle and suffering in our minds and hearts, in our lives, in relationship to this inherent, unreliable, unsatisfactory, the dukkha nature of life, that stress and struggle and suffering are, they, they arise because of our relationship, how we're relating to it, wanting things to be only a certain way, to be other than they are. All of our different ways that we, we struggle, our resistance and denial, and all of our attempts to control and manipulate things so that they only are a certain way. Trying to get it to be the way we want and stay that way. Now, this isn't to deny how difficult life is for so many and the truths of, of poverty and injustice and oppression. They're all too real. And that's not to deny that. And sometimes life is just hard and things, we have trouble, we get sick, whatever, all the things that do come. These are, this is real. But if we really look, we'll see that so much of the suffering that we experience is in, born, has its genesis in the mind from the way we're relating to, to the truth of things. So if we open to the truth of dukkha and bring the understanding that suffering or non-suffering in, in our lives is related to the way that we're, how we're relating to the truth of change and unreliability to dukkha, then, then this is a change in view because if we see there's a problem here, we're going to look for a solution, a real solution, not just turning again and again to just some other thing that doesn't, that doesn't last, that doesn't do the trick. So this is one way we might think of this right view, this first factor. So then this brings the second one of right intention into play. And you could say intention is what would link this view to something we might do. We seek a path. We seek, uh, we see there's a problem, something to try and do about it. And so we actually uh, undertake a practice, for example. We start a meditation practice. And so these two uh, initial factors of, of a, a shift in view and an intention to do something, they lead us to the next stage of the path, which has to do with our conduct and how we live our lives in the world. And this is the second section, three factors here of right speech, right action, right livelihood. And these, this aspect of the practice is basically about creating harmony in our lives in the world. We, we bring care to how we're living so that we don't intentionally add to the suffering in the world through our actions, through our work, through our speech. So and, and, and we can look at this in terms of our uh, engagement with the precepts. And so this commitment to living life carefully, a life of non-harming as best we can, to actually engaging with that, leads to the third section, which uh, is sometimes called the concentration group, the samadhi group. It has three factors of right effort, which Jill spoke about a lot last night, right mindfulness, right concentration. There's an interesting um, illustration in one of the texts um, that, that speaks about these three in terms of a kind of interdependent relationship I'd like to read to you. It's kind of a nice, a nice image. So it's in this uh, illustration, three children go to play in a park area and they're walking along and they see a tree that is flowering and they want to be able to pick some of the blossoms. But they're, they're too high for even the tallest of the, the children to reach. So one of them bends down and makes a, a stand, you know, offers their back, and, and one of them is able to climb up on, on this one's back, and, um, but, but they're, they're, they don't feel stable, they're afraid to fall, so they, the other one comes and offers a shoulder, and they can brace themselves with, on the shoulder and reach up and pick the flowers. And it's said that in this, in this, 
simile, this illustration, the tall child who picks the flowers is um, said to represent the mental factor of concentration um, that has the function of unifying the mind, but needs support in two ways. It needs the support of energy, which is said to be like the child who offers uh, the back offers uh, his back to stand on and needs the stability and um, the, the stabilizing awareness of mindfulness which is like the child who offers her shoulder and so they 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 inform and work with one another and they um, when they come together and they are working in a in a uh, balanced way then they they bring a certain uh, collectedness and stability of mind this non-distraction that we've been talking about, which allows the mindfulness, allows awareness to actually uh, connect with the objects of our attention, to connect with our life, and to actually stay present with what's happening long enough so that um, we can drop below the surface appearances, long enough uh, that this this, uh, sense of a deeper understanding, or what we might call insight, has a chance to arise there. So in essence, you could say we start to actually see the inner workings of our mind and heart, how our inner world functions and and how these deep habits of mind function to run our lives and um, not always in a good way. And just through seeing this, being willing to actually connect and see what's going on, there's this natural um, relaxing and letting go that starts to happen. And it's not so much a decision we make or something we do, but we just we see how suffering arises in the mind and heart, and that just deconditions our 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 tendency to cling and grasp at things. We feel the suffering and we let go. And through this process, we start to uh, get a taste of our occasional ways that we touch the possibility that this practice could lead to really a, a profound and deep kind of peace, the, the peace and freedom of what is called Nibbana or Nirvana, Nibbana in Pali, Nirvana in Sanskrit. You could say it's the fruit of the Buddha's awakening. And there's a very simple definition in one of, uh, one of the teachings. The Buddha said, extinction of greed Extinction of hate, extinction of delusion. This I call Nibbana. We can talk about this in a lot of ways, but this one is, is kind of, I think, something that we could really kind of relate to more directly. I mean, if these energies no longer are holding sway over our mind and heart, then we can then there we experience this deep, deep peace, this freedom, this nibbana. I mean, what would it be like if these energies just weren't present? It didn't arise in the mind stream. There's a, a monk who, uh, an old monk who died now a couple of years ago who I used to have the chance to go visit in Burma, and my friends nicknamed him the Happy Sayadaw. He, he was probably the happiest being I've ever met. And when I met him, he was way well into his uh, into his 90s, late 80s. But I, I knew him over some years, and he he died at the age of 99, I believe, a couple of years ago. And he was so happy so light and he was the real deal he'd been in robes practicing for 87 years and he'd been a he was highly regarded he'd been a teacher to to some very well-known famous teachers and he was living a very simple life and it was worth going all the way to Burma just to hang out with him for a little while for me and so one of my friends once asked him why he was so happy and he said, I have no ill will towards you or you or anybody anywhere. It just didn't arise in the mind. Can you? Can we even imagine this as a possibility? This is real. 
or if these energies did arise, if they had absolutely no power in the mind. This is from an enlightened uh, nun in Thailand. She died um, in the late 1970s or early 1980s. Mei-Chi Gao was her name. She was regarded as a fully enlightened being. She was a student of two very famous uh, teachers, uh, Ajahn Man and Ajahn Mahabua. And this is from a, a book about her. She said, Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known. Earth, water, fire, and wind. Body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness. Sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions. Anger, greed, and delusion all are known. Does that sound at all familiar, that list of things? That's what we're seeing all day. (laughs) All these contacts at the senses. All are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states. But no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. So a slightly different way of looking at it. In the one case, my example of the, the happy monk he said they don't arise. Mei said, yeah, I see them, but they don't touch the mind. They have no power. Unable to detect even an instant when they have any power in my mind and heart. The word Nibbana literally means something like to cease blowing or to go out. And an image that's used that I think is is really a good one is uh, of a fire that goes out when its fuel is exhausted. So if you think of a fire, when there's nothing fueling it, it just goes out. It just goes out. So this is, I think, a great image because when we don't feed the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, they just go out. If there's nothing feeding them, they fall away. Now we've spoken about these, Jill spoke about uh, these as the root, roots of suffering in our lives. And, and the word for them in Pali is kilesa, and it gets translated as defilement, which I think is a bit problematic. It's a catch-all term for these energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all the ways they manifest, like the hindrances, are manifestations of, of these energies. And I think we have to be careful because defilement sounds like, it doesn't sound so good. Like, oh, I am defiled. Like, it sounds like something really bad is going down here. And I think it's important that we remember that these energies are not evil or bad or wrong. You could see them as they're the untrained mind's attempts to deal with the truth's of change and unreliability and controllability with this, uh, this inherent fragility. They're, they're attempts to, to deal with that. So these energies are actually trying to help us. They're a little misguided, but they're, they're born of, of this urge towards happiness, freedom, and peace. They're actually trying to help us. So when they arise, in your mind and heart, you can say, thank you for trying, but let's try something else because it's not working. So they're not evil, wrong, or bad, and we are not defiled because they arise in our mind and heart. We have to be very careful how we relate to these things. And when they're in charge, when they're driving the bus, it's not going to go in a good direction. If hatred, aversion is driving the bus, it's going to go over this way. And if greed and craving are driving, it's going to go this way. And if delusion is driving, it's like a kid moving the wheel all over the place. So we need to understand these things. So they show up, it's said they show up in three ways, on three levels. I'm going to try to wrap this up. It's going to go a little long tonight. 
So the first way that they show up is called the, the level of transgression. And this has to do with um, when they have the upper hand, when they are driving the bus and we're acting them out. And they lead to actions of body or speech. And we see this all over the place and the way that this leads to suffering. They have a second way, a level that's a little more subtle, sometimes called a, the obsessive level. I'm not sure why that uh, term was chosen. But it's when they arise in the mind, they do come up. But there's enough, they're not acted on. There's a, we have enough presence of mind to not act them out. And then there's a third level that's called the latent tendencies where they're not, they're not showing up. They're in a kind of dormant state. But given the right conditions, they will arise. And there's an image that's um, used, uh, that's likened, that's likened to mud that has settled down at the bottom of a pond, but given the right conditions, it'll get stirred up. I had a very int- uh, great um, example of this in my practice in Burma once when I was living there as a monk, and I, I was on a long, long period of, of uh, like a retreat like you're doing here, only it lasted most of a year. And um, I was sitting very early in the morning, meditating, and I'm pretty cooled out and pretty peaceful. Sitting for a few hours in the early, early before um, sunrise. And at that time, someone had been breaking into some of the, the huts, the little kutis, they call them. Uh, uh, the, the accommodations we had were small little cabins. And um, so they said, oh, you need to leave your lights on, the outdoor light on, to discourage uh, people from coming around. And so we did this, but the the electricity then was really unpredictable. It was out more than it was on. And so I went to, I ended the evening, went to bed, leaving the light on, and it was on for a while. And um, there are a lot of different insects drawn to the light, and then there are are these little geckos who run around on the ceilings and walls and they like to feed on the bugs, and but they like to drop legs and wings and things that they don't particularly enjoy eating, I guess. So the porch was covered with these things. Then the power goes out. I'm all chilled out in my meditation and then I, it's time for me to get up and go somewhere. Meanwhile, my porch is covered with these tiny ants that... Um, they're voracious. They'll eat live prey and pieces of bugs. You know, they're, they'll eat anything. And they decided that I was a giant bug that they needed to try to kill and eat. So I step out. I'm all chilled out. Shanti, shanti. No, 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 Kilesa. I step on my porch and immediately the ants decide to kill and eat me. And, um, I had some latent tendencies that arose. <laughs> Very quickly, it was like, whoa, they're there right now. There was some, I did notice some strong aversion um, in my mind, you know, and trying to get them off without hurting them because you don't want to harm them. They're just following their nature. So this is this example of latent tendencies. <laughs> so these are, um, you could, the, the Eightfold Path addresses the things on this level. Also, but the, the, they're arranged in the way I first arranged them is how they're usually listed, but they, they get arranged in a different order. And this is called the trainings in sila, samadhi, and panya, or uh, ethical conduct, uh, concentration, meditation, and um, wisdom. So the I'll try to be quick with this. The transgressive level where we're acting these out is, are countered by the sila group. So attention to conduct, we have brings enough presence of mind that we don't act these things out. This is um, really the foundation because if we're acting these energies out all the time, we're not going to be able to deal with with um, the, the mind states that give rise to them. We're not going to be able to, to look and see what's what's where their genesis is. We're 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 too we're past that, and we see this uh, happening in the world around so much, and so. Our commitment to ethical conduct lets us meet these energies on the second level, the, what's called what I described as the obsessive level, where they're arising, but we're not uh, acting them out, at least not in any gross ways. And so that's mostly a lot of what we're doing in meditation. We, we these energies come and we we see them, we meet them as they arise. We see their, we get to know them energetically, 
uh, just directly in our practice in the mind. So we sit with anger and frustration and boredom and confusion and all these things and we get to know them directly and we don't have to act on them and we don't have to try to manipulate things so that we don't feel them. And we start to see if we're willing to actually sit with them that we can allow them to arise and pass away because that's their nature. And they don't have to... um, they don't have to run our lives and they start to unbind and relax by themselves. Things start to loosen up. <clears throat> and in our practice, we start to see that there's a certain stability and uh, purity of mind that can result from these uh, meditative factors, the concentration, the effort, the mindfulness. They come together, they reach a certain strength, and sometimes they hold these energies at bay. There's not, the mindfulness is so, the strength of our mindfulness can be strong enough that there's no room for them. They, they can't get in there. They don't arise. Sometimes this is called the bliss of seclusion. It can be restful, peaceful. We see this maybe for short moments. There are times when these energies, they're not arising. We're secluded from them. These are temporary states. They don't last. They're conditioned. They're they're there because of causes and they'll fall away when those things change. And and so um, this is the case when these uh, uh, kilesas are in the dormant, the latent. Like my description of my my meditation period when before my ants uh, came into play. And so this third level of the latent tendencies is uprooted by the wisdom factors. Could say the power to actually see through them and render them powerless. This is the level of, of real insight. It's not. Um, it's not an understanding. It's not an intellectual understanding, but it's a direct seeing. It's an intuitive kind of understanding. So the the eightfold path addresses things on this on these three levels, and then there's. Another aspect of confusion or delusion that underlies even these misguided energies, these attempts to deal with with the truths of change and unreliability and uncontrollability. Then they show up in three ways. It has to do with these understandings of change, of anicca, dukkha, anatta, change, unreliability, uh, corelessness or uncontrollability. So this delusion is it takes that which is impermanent to be permanent, that which is unreliable or incapable of being a source of lasting happiness as being capable of that, and taking that which is um, not a self to be a self. And so our practice, we start to see the truth of change on deeper and deeper and more profound levels. Through seeing that, we we see... And when I'm using the word see here because it's hard to come up with a better one, but we see that there's nothing that lasts long enough to be a dependable source of lasting happiness. It's not wrong or bad, but it, we can't, we, we don't ask it to do that because we see it, it just doesn't last long enough. It can't do it. And we see, um, into what's maybe the most radical and most liberating understanding of the Buddha in terms of this seeing into the deep uncontrollability of things in terms of um, we don't take that which is not a self to be a self. And so one way of looking at this is that we see that our experience is this flow of natural processes. It's causes and effects and and that it's a flow of this, conditions of folding unfolding according to a natural kind of law and that um, it's happening by itself, that it's not amenable to our will, that we're not controlling it and that there's no one to whom it is happening. It's just the flow. And that when we cling to or identify with some aspect of that, the feeling of self arises. That what we call self is a feeling that arises dependent on this 
clinging or identification in the mind and heart. That it's just a feeling that's there. It gives rise to the sense, I am, this is mine, this is happening to me. That this this feeling arises out of how, how we're relating to the experience, our relationship there. When the clinging and identification isn't there, it doesn't arise. And we can see this, we can see it, the feeling of self sometimes is really strong and sometimes it's not there. It's not always there. Sometimes it's just the flow, contacts and knowing. And seeing this in the deepest, profoundest way, which is not something we, it's not a decision we make, but when we really see this, then the mind naturally relaxes and releases and lets go. We let things arise and cease according to their nature, which they're doing anyway, and we just let go of it. We give it back to nature. We give back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. So this is, I'll end tonight with a, a few more words from this nun, Mei Chi Kao, a beautiful uh, uh, way that she had of uh, speaking about this understanding. She said, in a perfectly still, crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily, fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows, and the world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is by its very nature absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is just its normal state. So I apologize for running a little long tonight and uh, we'll just have a moment of quiet and let the words uh, drift off into the windy evening. And 